Welcome back to the Teach for the Heart podcast, where we tackle teaching challenges from a biblical perspective. Why are we here? Because we don't believe that our spiritual walk and teaching profession should exist in two separate domains. Rather, the hope we have in Christ should change how we approach everything, not just at home, but at school as well. So join us as we explore both the spiritual and practical sides of key teaching challenges, integrating them together so we can succeed at teaching, glorify God, and make a lasting difference in our students' hearts and lives. I'm so excited to bring you this special bonus episode where we're going to share with you a session that we created with Jonathan Holmes from Fieldstone Counseling for last year's Rise Up Summit. Um, If you missed last year's Rise Up Summit, you're not going to want to miss this year. You can head to riseupchristianeducators.com to find out all about the event. It is free to attend and get those dates on your calendar. But this conversation was so valuable because it touches on so many different issues from gender identity to anxiety and depression to, you know, how we different generations see things differently. And most importantly of all, how the gospel speaks into all all of that. So do not skip this episode. I'm so glad you're listening to it. I know you're going to find it really helpful. Real quick, before we get into that, a couple housekeeping items. First of all, any of the resources we mentioned um, can be found at teachfortheheart.com slash identity. So teachfortheheart.com slash identity. Anything we mentioned this episode, you can go there. Um, there's also a kind of a chart that we refer to, and you can go there and see that chart and even, you know, kind of save a copy of it for yourself um, at teachfortheheart.com slash identity. Uh, second thing, as I said, I hope that you will in- join us next year's Rise Up Summit. So riseupchristianeducators.com, once again, is the URL for that. And then third, our brand new Pray plan is out and available for pre-order. So if you head to teachfortheheart.com slash planner, you can check out the brand new planner for this new school year coming up and you can pre-order it now and get some special pre-order bonuses if you do so this week. All right, let's dive right into this conversation. Hi, and welcome back to the Rise Up Summit. I'm so excited to be here today with Jonathan Holmes, director of Fieldstone Counseling, and we're going to talk about our identity, which when we first say that, you might be thinking... What is this about? But I think you'll see quickly how relevant it is to so many areas that you face both in and out of the classroom from, you know, big things like gender identity, sexual identity to everyday things like anxiety, how we find our own worth and meaning and tie it to our work, (laughs) to differences between ordering younger generations. I I think we're going to tackle a little bit of all of that and specifically how the gospel shapes that. So thank you so much, Jonathan. My pleasure. Glad to be here with you. I'm so excited to dive into this because um, I was talking with my sister-in-law a little while ago and she just shared with me, she had been at one of your talks Mm -hmm. and shared with me this little chart where you had differentiated what a traditional identity looks like, a a modern identity Mm -hmm. differences, and then the gospel. And I read through that chart and immediately was like, (laughs) wow, this is so helpful. So I know it's going to be really, really good to go through the nuance of it together. No, absolutely happy to. So let's kind of start at the beginning with some background. Yeah. What do we even mean when we're talking about identity? identity? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's such a, like you were saying, Linda, it's one of those topics that really touches on so many different things. Identity is really everything. It is what we move and live and breathe and do all of our activity out of our sense of who we are, uh, how we got here. What are we made for? What am I doing? Uh, who gets to say whether I'm not, I'm doing it successfully or not? Uh, that. That concept of identity is something that is so core and integral to everything that we do. 
And it's something that sociologists and psychologists and, and, and people in a variety of disciplines have studied for countless centuries in terms of how do people come into an understanding of who they are. So when we think of it in our context, you know, why does why does this matter to us? Like why should right. we why should we take time to even think about right. this? Right. I think because a lot of times when we're having these discussions about sexual orientation, about gender, about some of these other mental health issues, sometimes I think we attack just the problem itself and we forget the person behind the problem. That person is living and breathing and acting out an identity that they have either uh, gotten from somewhere else. Uh, that they've constructed for themselves, uh, or something in between that they've kind of cobbled together. And I think kind of understanding some of those core issues of identity, uh, how it's formed, what its goal is, is going to be really critical in both the classroom and then also in everyday life as you seek to engage your neighbors, your loved ones, your family. Yeah, it kind of touches everywhere, It really it? <laughs> does. It really does. Yeah. So you, uh, the framework you had had three was traditional, yeah. mm-hmm. modern, modern, and gospel. And gospel. Right. So, it, you know, traditional identity is, you know, historians would say traditional identity for, I would say, the better part of human history has kind of been the dominant way that people have come to an understanding of themselves. So, you know, kind of a brief history lesson would be that uh, traditional identity is really centered around a person's family of origin, that we get our sense of who we are from people outside of ourselves our moms, our dads, our cultures, our family structures. Um, and that, you know, during this uh, time of identity making, right, your, your mom and dad, they're, 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 they're bakers. Well, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a baker. Your mom and dad are teachers. Guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a teacher, meaning that your primary identity was in some ways already chosen for you. You didn't really get a choice. Uh, you're supposed to stay in your lane and do what was expected from you, meaning society has these expectations, your family has these expectations, they put them on you and you fulfill them. Um, those expectations then get aligned with this ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal in traditional identity is to be a good person, to be an honorable person. So as you seek to do what your mom and dad are asking you to do, to be a baker or a fisherman or a teacher or whatever, that kind of is the gold standard of, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my life in accordance with these external sets of expectations. Um, so you think about some of like the some of our old favorite movies, movies like Braveheart or Gladiator, right? Those are movies that are very centered on traditional identity. People trying to uh, live out their life as it is expected of their clan, their family of origin, and do something good with their life, do something um, for the good of their family or their clan. Um, traditional identity was very much rooted in those uh, family structures, in that family of origin. Okay, so this is more, it, there's pieces of this still, but yes. as you're describing that, yeah. it's like that does, it's like that's kind of more like this point, I guess, how people used to think or how yes. an older generation Definitely. would think, right? Definitely an older generation. And sometimes like in churches and even maybe in classrooms, right? If you're an older teacher with a younger generation in your classroom, there you're going to feel that shift very much of traditional to modern identity. Because I would say for older generations, um, that traditional identity making paradigm was the dominant mm-hmm. one. You want to be a good person. You want to be a person that brings honor to your family, uh, that you for are fulfilling family expectations, as it were. Um, it is traditional. You kind of think about like, you know, the Cleaver family, right? It right. very much, very much has that feel. And it, there's, there's this sense of familiarity and goodness to it that, you know, in many arenas feels very attractive. Yeah. So. For sure. And then a modern identity looks very different. Yes. Or modern identity, modern looks identity really like different. coming 
this kind of newer yes. way of viewing things. Yes, I would say modern identity is definitely much more recent. Uh, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. He's written a lot about this uh, topic of identity. And whereas in traditional identity, the highest good or the best thing that you can do with your life is to live a good or an honorable life that aligns with your family of origins expectations. In modern identity, you begin to see a significant shift where the highest good becomes your personal happiness. The highest good in modern identity is that you are authentically you, that you're the best you that you can be, right? So we see all these memes floating around, all this marketing and advertising about be the, be the best you that you can be, uh, live your true self, uh, do what makes you happy, uh, live your truth, right? All of these kind of aphoristic platitudes that kind of get thrown around. Uh, that's all moving towards a modern identity where you and your happiness are self-authenticated and self-determined. You get to choose it. Your mom and dad don't get to choose who you are. Uh, culture doesn't get to tell you who you get to like or not like. The church doesn't get to tell you uh, who it's okay to be attracted to or not. You now are the sovereign individual. You are in control of everything. And so that is a major and a significant shift that I would say has probably happened within the past 50 to 75 years. And there's just so much there that probably explains some of the generational differences or for some of us that are in kind of this middle, you almost pulled in Mm -hmm. both generationally. Right. Um, but if I'm asking which is right and which is wrong, it's probably right. the wrong question, right? Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> because it, it, I think, Linda, that's such a good point because a lot of times when you're thinking about modern versus traditional, there might be something in you feels really drawn towards traditional identity that's like, well, that probably is, you know, that's, you know, the good old days. Let's Let's get back to that. But I would actually think that both traditional and modern identities both have problems as well as some good and commendable things about it. Um, right? Like, let's say in a traditional identity, let's say you grew up with uh, an abusive set of parents, a bad mom and dad, right? Uh, living into their expectations or what they want probably is not going to be God's ultimate design for you or a healthy environment for you. So traditional identity has some challenges to it. Modern identity has a very unique set of challenges. And so that that third column on that chart that you were referencing earlier, that's where I don't think it's a traditional or a modern what I'm advocating for and what I think scripture speaks to is a gospel identity. And a gospel identity primarily is an identity that is received and not achieved. It's an identity that's received and not achieved. In both traditional and modern identity, you in many ways have to earn your own identity. And the beauty of the gospel is, no, the gospel says, no, this is God and this is who he says you are. And that's the final and authoritative and good a word for who you are. Yeah. And that just makes such a difference because I think in our society, there is such a pull to either, okay, embrace modern, or sometimes there's that pull back. No, stay with this. And as Christians, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we're, right. I don't know if outside of it is the right word, but like we should be looking at both of them completely differently. Yes, I, I agree. I think that the gospel, you know, Tim Keller talks a lot about the gospel and culture. And he says, before you can explain the gospel to a culture, you need to be able to analyze the culture with the gospel. And so I think you're right. We need to come out of these two binaries of how do people understand identity and say, okay, let's take scripture. Let's take the gospel and evaluate both of those. What are the strengths of each of them? What are the weaknesses out of each of them? We've just identified a few of those. And then, okay, where does scripture navigate this via media, this middle path of, okay, it's not going to be this and it's not that, it's this. And, you know, you think about, you know, Christ in Matthew 10, he talks about 
you know, this, this paradox. He says, if you seek to find your life, you're ultimately going to lose it. He says, the call of the gospel is lose yourself and you'll end up finding yourself. Modern identity actually says the opposite. It says, no, find yourself. Find out who you really are. Dig deep inside your feelings and figure out who you are. And what we find is this is probably the most lost, depressed, anxious generation uh, in recent memory. And that's where the gospel is so countercultural because the gospel says, no, lose yourself. Lose yourself in Christ. And the beauty of that is you'll actually end up finding yourself. Finding a sense of who you are yeah. as an individual. Oh, that's yeah. Amen. So I can yeah. <laughs> say that. Um, so we're going to dive into in a minute, like some of the, like, see how this applies to different yeah. scenarios, but yeah. maybe let's walk through, can we walk through um, a few of these areas yes. and, and yeah. how they yeah. kind Absolutely. of, um, and we'll put the chart here so you guys can see what we're <laughs> talking about too, um, just how they go. So I think the first thing on here is where does one's identity come from? What does right. it look like in right. the different identities? So in traditional identity, it's external, meaning that you are looking for someone outside of yourself to tell you who you are. So again, mom and dad are bakers. They're from a long line of bakers or merchants or fishermen or teachers or whatever. That's who you're going to be. You don't, you don't get to select it. Whereas in modern identity, your identity comes from internally. It's your own feelings. Oh, you know, I feel that I want to be this, or I feel I'm attracted to this, or I'm a boy, but I feel like I'm a girl. Your entire identity is self-authenticated and it's self-determined. Uh, gospel identity, we would say, is a mix. It's an identity that we receive from the Lord, but then gets lived out in our daily life. Um, so again, it's not an either or, but it's a how does the gospel speak to this middle way, this third way? Right. But if I'm having, if I'm thinking with the gospel, then I'm I'm not looking externally or purely internally. I'm looking right. first to God, and then yes. how do I act? Right. Right. Within and out. Right. Even sense. think about like your personality, your disposition, right? That that the that the gospel doesn't obliterate those things. That doesn't obliterate your your gender, your race, your background, your family of origin. But it says, like in Galatians three, right, that all of these things, you know, there's neither male nor female nor Greek nor Jew, but that doesn't mean that it's the obliteration of all of those distinctives, but that in Christ, that's the most important thing. And everything else is going to flow out of that. So with children and teens and those that we're in, interacting and engaging with, your primary identity is in Christ in who the Lord says you are. But then there's a wonderful opportunity for a diversity of ways for that to get expressed within the body of Christ and within, you know, wherever we might find ourselves located. Yes, yes. Okay, so identity um, comes from either external, internal, yes. or from from, the from God, and yeah. then worked out. Yes. Um, the next part is what is the highest good? How right. is that defined? Right. Like we said, in traditional identity, the highest good historically was to be a good person. Um, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle said, "Hey, there is a cosmic order to the universe, and that cosmic order seems to be oriented to." to these virtues, these good virtues of love and charity and chivalry, all of these other things that, you know, Greek and Roman and um, uh, early philosophers talked about. So you want to align yourself to this at least standard of good. They didn't locate that standard of good in the Bible, but it was more like this good life, this virtuous life. In modern identity, it's very different. Uh, honor and being a good person, that's not a bad thing, but what's most important is your happiness, right? And I bet you, I bet teachers see this a lot with children nowadays where the most important thing at the end of the day is very self-oriented. It's about them feeling happy, fulfilled, affirmed. It's very me-focused. Um, you know, you try and push back on a, on a modern teenager now about, you know, 
that's not the most important need that you have or thinking outside of yourself or what might other people think about, you know, this, that, or the other. And, you know, that's probably going to kind of fall on deaf ears because uh, they have been trained to think, no, the most important thing is, is me. It's my wants and it's my needs. And don't, don't trample on my needs. Don't do anything that keeps me from meeting my needs. Um, so definitely the highest good of modern identity is that, um, you know, Charles Taylor would call it the age of authenticity. We live in an age where the highest good is that you are authentically you. Um, and so you see that in marketing, you see that in philosophy, you see it pretty much in every area of life. Yes. And that, that it just, even recognizing that explains a lot, yeah. <laughs> explains yeah. a lot. Yeah. What, what about the gospel? What does it say? Yeah. The gospel would say, again, it's, do you have to choose between living an honorable and a good life and being happy? Again, that via media of no, the highest good is living a life that's been designed for you as God has intended it for. So think about, think, think about the issue of gender, right? The issue of gender. Um, the issue of gender, right? God created gender. He created us as male and female, and he declared that as good. So the highest good in a gospel identity is that we live out God's intended design for gender in the way that he's called and designed us for. That's the highest good. Now, for some people, that might present difficulty, right? They might feel that sense of dysphoria, but the gospel then is going to come up underneath that and say, right, we can we can shape and we can work through that discomfort or that dysphoria or that difficulty underneath this broader heading of, but this is who you are. This is how you were designed. This is how you were created, uh, rather than leading first with the, I don't feel this to be true, or I don't feel that you know, this is my true identity. We start with what's known. We start with the gospel, who God is and what he's called us to be. Yeah. That's a huge difference though. When I'm thinking, you know, what is, what, what should I be striving for in my right. life? You know, yeah. is it just these virtues? Is it what I want? But it's, right. no, it's what does God have? Right. What does yes. God have for me? That's a totally different way of yeah. looking at it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Okay. The next one is um, who gives us our identity? Right. And again, we're going to probably touch on some other things that we've already mentioned, but in traditional identity, again, uh, it's chosen for you. You don't really get a choice in modern identity. You get to choose it. It's kind of like a, almost a choose your own adventure, you know, type of thing where you get to kind of be whoever it is that you want to be. Uh, I've seen a lot of times in, uh, in education, the gender unicorn, which is pretty prevalent in different classrooms. And, you know, there's this gender unicorn and you get to choose your gender, how you identify your sexual orientation. It's very much like a grab bag, you know, of whatever it is. So very different than traditional rows chosen for you. And then again, in, in gospel identity, it's given to you. You don't have to choose it. You don't have to earn it. It's given to you by God. And again, as we'll you know see, and I think talk about a little bit later, that type of stability of having an identity that's received, that is consistent and stable and doesn't just change with your feelings. Uh, there's a lot to be commended about that. And the fact that it's given to you by a good and a righteous yes. God, right? Yes. Not just chosen by parents and rather right. faulty people yeah, that could really exactly. choose the wrong thing. Exactly. It's not, it's not determined by your grades. It's not determined by your athletic ability. It's not determined by your popularity. It is given by a God, like you said, who loves you, made you, and who has good things for you. All right. Next thing is um, relating to our culture. Right. You know, in traditional identity, the whole goal really was to fit in. You know, you kind of... 
sit down, shut up, just do what was told and what was asked of you. Modern identity, it's the exact opposite. It's all about standing out. It's about being uniquely you. And so in a classroom of 30 kids, you need to have 30 individual expressions of identity and doing whatever it takes to really highlight yourself. Uh, I brought this article from Time Magazine. And Time Magazine used to do this thing about the 100 most influential adults in the world and a few issues. And then over the last few years, it's kind of the 100 most influential uh, young people. And recently, they released an issue of the 100 most influential children in the world. And it just, I think, bears witness to the fact that there's a huge amount of pressure on teens and children in particular now to stand out in a way that historically has never been the case. So this is a boy, his name's Cash Daniels. He's 12 years old. It says, Daniel spends hours every week cleaning up cans and bottles in the rivers near his home with other teen environmentalists. They have collected more than one ton of aluminum cans, nearly 1,000 cans a week for a year. His goal for 2022 is even more ambitious. In January, he co-founded a club called the Cleanup Kids with his best friend, Ella, a fellow homeschool project Uh, with the person who lives in Canada. The project's mission is this. They want to encourage kids to pick up 1 million pounds of trash across the globe before the end of the year. So that's his goal, right? 12-year-old boy trying to be this environmental activist. At the very end, uh, the writer says this. It says, but in truth, the burden to save the planet has landed on children like cash. This is a direct quote from cash. He says, kids may be a small percent of the population but we are 100% of the future and we can save the world, right? Now, again, it sounds like he has a great heart, but that is a lot of pressure on a 12-year-old boy in Chattanooga, Tennessee to feel like the weight of the world's future rests on him. But in modern identity, you have to carve that out for yourself. You've got to be a pioneer. You've got to stand out. You have to make a name for yourself. Um, There's a huge push to do that because... If you are authenticating your own identity, it had better be the best identity possible. So there's a huge push towards that type and that level of achievement. So what about, how would we think about this in terms of the gospel? Yeah, exactly. And in the gospel identity, again, we would say, you're not trying to fit in. You're not just trying to stand out. In a gospel identity, it is the splendid both. You know, the scripture says you're a resident alien. You're a sojourner in this world. You are supposed to fit in, right? There's a lot of parts in scripture where it says, hey, put your head down, work with your hands, honor the king, you know, pray for those around you. And then Also, you're not made for this world. So there is a little bit of a standing out. But you see what scripture does. It says it's not this and it's not this. It's this, right? It's being a sojourner. It's being a resident alien in this world. How do I fit in? But how do I also stand out? How am I a light, you know, that shines and doesn't bring glory to me, but brings glory to the Father in heaven? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the gospel, it just... It changes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. It, it both, the gospel is analyzing and ways. pushes back. Yeah. It really does. It really does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe we can go through this one quickly. Yeah. Um, who is like the validator? Right. So in traditional identity, it was your parents or some type of authority structure, right? Like a king, you know, tells you like, well done, you're knighted or whatever. In modern identity, you are. You're, you're the authority. And then in gospel identity, God. God has the final word about who you are as an individual. Yeah. How about um, what we are? Right. You know, in traditional identity, we might say you are your duties, right? You are what you do. Um, We might say in uh, modern identity, you are your desires, right? You are whatever it is you feel in the moment. Um, 
you know, one of the one of the many different things in the kind of alphabet soup of gender identity is uh, this uh, gender non-binary, right? Where you know, some days I maybe feel more female, other days I might feel more male. It's a constant fluidity, you know, that you basically are whatever you feel in a given moment. And, you know, in terms of gospel identity, gospel identity gives you that stable sense. It says, no, this is who you are. You are an image bearer of the living God. That's who you are. You're not what you do. You aren't just your feelings. This is who you are. Yes. And that makes such a difference. It makes, it makes a huge difference. <laughs> I'm like difference. tempted to go into all these, yeah. but let's, let's finish these last yeah. two and then we can go into them. Um, what about who makes the sacrifice right. for whom? Right. So that's kind of an odd question, you know, like who makes the sacrifice? But what, what I'm trying to get at there is in traditional identity, you have to make the sacrifice. Let's say you grew up in a family of teachers and you're like, you know, I don't want to be a teacher. I'd like to be a baker or I'd like to be a ballet dancer. In traditional identity, you have to suppress that for the good of your parents and to bring honor to them. So you say, you know what? I want to be a ballet dancer or a baker, but you know what? I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to be a teacher. So you make the sacrifice. In modern identity, everyone else around you makes a sacrifice. So I stand up and I say, this is who I am. And everybody around me, you get on board. You have to affirm me. You have to authenticate what I feel. So if you push back on somebody's gender identity, right, you're a bigot. You're, you're transphobic. Uh, you hate people, right? Why? Because you need to be making the sacrifice for me. And in gospel identity, again, it's neither this or that. It is Christ makes the sacrifice. Christ makes the ultimate sacrifice in giving himself up for us to bring us into the family of God. Um, and so, again, it's a wonderful way that both analyzes modern and traditional identity, but also critiques it and offers a third way. Yeah, and reframes it all. It completely reframes it, yeah. All right, last thing we have in our chart yes. um, is what about emotions? Right, How what do you do with those things? feelings? Yeah, right. You know, in modern, in traditional identity, you know, feelings are just a total no-go. You know, who, <laughs> who cares? cares? <laughs> who, yeah, who cares about your feelings? That old Stoic philosophy, that stiff upper lip. Yeah, you might have a feeling of you want to accomplish, you know, you know, these great deeds. You might want to sail around the world. Well, no, you're staying at home. You're doing, so you suppress your feelings. In modern identity, you are your feelings. I mean, everything is feeling-based. Um, you know, the, the sense of, well, I feel this, or I want this, or I'm feeling more male, I'm feeling more female, or I feel like I am attracted romantically to this gender, or whatever it might be, that becomes the authoritative factor. And in gospel identity, critiques both of those, right? And it puts it in its proper place. Like you said, it reframes it. It says, no, feelings aren't the determining aspect or factor in our faith, but they are important, right? You look at the Psalms, right? The Psalms are clearly pro-emotion, very positive on them, but it's it's going to say, but they're, they're for a certain purpose, right? You're not supposed to live out your identity based off of your feelings. So Yes, yeah. There, I mean, that could be a whole other, a whole session yeah. right there. <laughs> but let's let's go ahead and um, take this. Um, like as I said, we'll make sure we share this so you guys can kind of have that as a reference. Um, well, you've mentioned gender dysphoria a few times, yeah. so let, let's kind of go through yeah. that. How would viewing myself then? Let's say I'm struggling with gender yeah. dysphoria. Yeah. How would viewing myself with a gospel identity instead of well, either modern or traditional, but typically modern in this case? How would this change how I approach this struggle? Right. Right. Well, one of the first things I think, uh, one of the first things as teachers, the way that I think you can approach the struggle, especially as a believer in, you know, either a Christian or a secular workplace is, okay, what do I know? What do I know to be true about God, how he made us and created us? And what we know with complete clarity is that God created people as gendered beings, that he created people according to Genesis 1 and 2 as male and female. So right away, there's 
no ambiguity. There's no sense of like, I wonder if there's, you know, a third way or something different. No, there's, there's something good about gender, about being created male and female. So when we come to a student or when we're engaged in a conversation with someone who is struggling with the sense of, I don't feel like I'm my gender, right? So I'm biologically male, but feel female, right? That we actually have a category for that in scripture called the fall, mm. that with the fall, there is going to be this reflected brokenness or dysphoria that could be present. So if a student came and told me that, I would be able to engage them and say, okay, tell me a little bit more about that. Because in my paradigm and in scripture storyline, that's not far-fetched. That's not crazy. That could actually be plausible. Okay, tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean when you say you're having feelings of dysphoria or discomfort with your um, embodied gender? Um, and that then creates a dialogue, right? It doesn't have to shut it off as something that feels very other than or very distant. The question then becomes, though, what do I do with it, right? And this begins to, you know, where you begin to see some divergence, right? Modern identity is going to push you down a lane where you affirm that student's feelings or that uh, student's pathway. Whereas a gospel identity is going to say, okay, let's acknowledge the difficulty that you are sensing in this dysphoria or the state of discomfort with your body, but could we go to scripture and see what scripture has to say about your about your body, about the goodness of your body, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that we can glorify God with our bodies. So you might feel a sense of discomfort and dysphoria, either acutely or chronically, but does that mitigate or inhibit your ability to still glorify God as a gendered being? And I think that there's a pathway for that. Yes. And um, yeah, we'll link to a conversation we had all about gender identity yeah. a couple years ago. Yeah. We, we have that available too, if you guys want to kind of explore yeah. that pathway in more, more, but that's so it. helpful to just, just, I mean, that question of where do we start? Where do you start? You know, are we starting yeah. with me and how I feel? Right. Or are we starting with what God has shown us right, and then right. and then there's lots to work out right that starting point is huge the starting point is huge because at least it gives you somewhere to go there's always going to be a lot of question marks about the what is or what about intersex or what about this thought or this feeling or this particular subcategory or whatever and it can get overwhelming right i mean there are so many different uh, ways that people are identifying nowadays that i mean it's almost impossible to keep up. If we like, you know, publish this now in 2022, who knows where we might be in a year from now. Um, But what doesn't change is who God is and how he created us and what he's told us in scripture. So I always find that there's a good comfort in starting with what we know and then taking scripture's storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation and overlaying that then onto a lot of these difficult conversations and scenarios that you know, teachers like you are just encountering every single day. Yeah. And becoming more, if you haven't yes. run into them yet. Yes, you will. You will. Not if, but when. Come. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. That's super helpful. Can we talk about, switch gears a little bit and talk yeah. about it? Maybe more, I don't, maybe not more common, but I think it is way more common issue like anxiety. Yeah. How would my absolutely. thoughts about my anxiety yeah. be different if I'm looking with a gospel identity? Great question, Linda. You know, let's take, you know, one of the things we know about modern identity is that you have to choose it for yourself and you have to uh, self-determine and self-authenticate yourself. You actually have to tell yourself that you are the thing that you want to be. Now, I don't know about you, but that places an enormous amount of pressure on yourself. And I don't know about you, but a lot of the kids and families that we're seeing in counseling, kids are dealing with a huge amount of performance anxiety, anxiety about their grades, their sports, their friendships, their romantic relationships, uh, what they're going to do, where they're going to go to college. I mean, 
kids are in more extracurricular activities nowadays than they've ever been. They're taking more tests than they've ever taken before. There's just a huge, I mean, you know, Cash Daniels, the, the guy I just read from you, 12-year-old boy, wants to save the planet. Now, in a modern identity where all of that is on your shoulders, there's no wonder why we're the most anxious generation in history. Now, imagine what anxiety would look like if even a portion of that was removed, of where my identity is not wholly wrapped up in my academic performance, my athletic performance, my external relationships. What might that, what might that do? Would that at least, I would hope, maybe take it from a, a nine to a seven, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, on a, on a scale. And what we're finding a lot of times with these, with children and teens in particular, is that as you begin to peel back some of these layers of, I would say, self-imposed expectations, a lot of times those levels of anxiety do decrease because, okay, if I don't have to be responsible for the creation and maintenance and sustaining of my own identity, but you're telling me that there's a good God out there who determines it for me, whew, like that's, that's very relieving in many ways. Does it remove all the challenge? I don't want to make it out like you're, you're never going to have anxiety again, but I think it significantly mitigate your experience of that. Right. And if my worth is tied into not me and how good I do, right? that's just, you know, but if my worth is already determined by being an image bearer and a child of God, then, then I can work out of that. Right. Yeah. Totally. Here's another way to think about it. Let's say your anxiety then is also related to everybody in my life needs to approve of my identity, Mm -hmm. right? So you, you, you have a student who wants and is demanding affirmation from everybody in their life. Well, that, that leads to a large amount of anxiety because any pushback on that, let's say you're a Christian school teacher in a Christian school and your school has certain standards as it relates to gender or sexual orientation, and you push back on a student's perceived choice or their professed choice, right? If, if your whole identity then is constructed on needing other people's approval, that's going to lead to a lot of anxiety and, and difficulty than if everybody's not approving of you and affirming you. Right. But if you actually had a stable sense of identity where you got pushed back from other people, but yet that didn't, that didn't, um, that didn't wreck you or didn't destabilize you, uh, that, that would be something I think worth investigating, right? If, if I could have a sense of who I am that was stable and that was unchanging, even in the midst of other people around me, um, not affirming that. Yeah. Definitely. Are there any other like common situations you see that would be, think be helpful? Yeah, to well, well, I mean, let's talk about depression, right? Mm-hmm. Depression is another huge issue, kind of very similar to anxiety. When you, when you put that weight of identity formation completely on yourself and then realize that you can't do it, that's depressing. It, it was funny. I just was at lunch with a friend and I, I went to a local Chinese restaurant here in town. I opened up my fortune cookie and the fortune cookie said, be the best that you can be and be perfect at it. Oh my. And I thought to myself, I showed it to my friend just a few minutes ago at lunch. I said, I, I've got to take this and, and, and share this in my talk. But you hear that message all the time. Be all that you can be, be the best you. But what happens on a, what happens on a day where you, well, you're not, yeah, where you're not, man, that, that, that's depressing, right? Nobody can perform at that level, right? And that's one of the elusive things about modern identity is there's always going to be somebody out there who's better at what you're doing than you are. Be the best you that you can be athletically. There will always be somebody out there more athletic, more beautiful, more rich, more successful in all these different areas. And what it does is it just creates this rat race 
that then collapses in on itself. So anxiety is at the one end of the spectrum. At the other end, with our students, what I think you're finding and what we're finding at Fieldstone is a lot of dis- a lot of depression and despair of, I can't keep doing this. I-, I-, I can't keep doing this, right? And so you get to spots of suicide and self-harm and severe depression and eating disorders, just this, this sense of, I can't continue to carry this weight on my shoulders any longer. That makes that yeah, that makes so much sense. And when we come at it from the gospel, that right. that changes it. Totally different. Right. When we come at it from the gospel, we say, you don't have to do a single thing to earn your approval or identity from the Lord. Your identity is received, not achieved. And that's that's the that is the gospel melody that's constantly humming along in my mind and my heart as I'm talking to people. All right. So let's talk for just a few minutes about yeah. how can we as teachers help our students? We've already yeah. touched on that a lot, but let's let's break it up a little bit because we've got some teachers in Christian schools where they right. can they can talk about the gospel flat out, and then right. public obviously is a different challenge. So let's talk with um, if we're in a Christian school or in a place where we have the ability to right. talk about the gospel. Do you have any advice for teachers as they're counseling and helping students with? Yes. All of this. <laughs> right. All, all that we're talking about. I would say, you know, Linda, for those teachers that are in Christian environments where there's more openness and freedom, I would say really owning, knowing, and then being able to contextualize the storyline of scripture to some of these struggles to understand this is what our students are made for. This is how it goes bad. This is what ultimately makes it right. And this is the end goal that we're after. And so you take, again, something like sexual orientation. Well, God designed the covenant of marriage to be between a gendered male and a gendered female. That's where we start. Now, the fall comes in and informs that, and we realize that's going to get shattered. It's going to get disordered. That that storyline's not going to look as pristine and as perfect as it did in Genesis 1 and 2. And then what ultimately makes it right? It's not just, well, let's just be really good and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps like a traditional identity, but it's, and we need something outside of ourselves ultimately to bring about shalom and peace and wholeness to this either dysphoria or difficulty or suffering or ultimately sin and brokenness. So if you're in a Christian environment, I would say really exercise that muscle of knowing scripture storyline and being able to dialogue about it with students. Um, for teachers who are in secular environments where there's going to be a lot more limitation on that, one of the things that I would encourage teachers with is really digging into a lot of what we talked about today, understanding the narrative behind what drives a lot of these discussions, this creation of the modern identity. So you know, here's a simple conversation that a student and a teacher might have. You know, if they're having a conversation is, you know, you know, what would it look like to just only be known by one aspect of your identity. Would you want that, right? Like, why don't you write down all the different ways that you might identify? You know, I'm I'm male, you know, I'm Korean-American, I'm a pastor, I'm a dad, I'm a brother. You know, I might list out 20 or 30 different aspects of my identity. Now, is there any one of those things where I would say, that's the only thing I want to be known by? Well, probably not, because none of those things fully captures who I am. And so then for the teacher to say, well, why do you think there's such a pressure then to do that with, say, your sexual orientation or your gender identity, right? The world is saying, this is the most important thing about you, that you're bisexual, that you're lesbian, that you're demi-romantic, that you're bi-romantic, that you are, you know, gender non-affirming or that you're gender non-conforming or gender queer. Why do you think there's so much pressure on you to just choose this one thing, right? I know a lot of other things about you. I know that you like to play basketball, that you're a good friend, that you're a son, a brother, and essentially trying to get them to see the fallacy 
ultimately behind this theology mm. and this methodology, which is forcing kids to choose just one aspect of their identity and make it 100% of who they are. And again, we've already identified a lot of the problems with that. Sooner or later, your ability to self-determine, self-maintain, and self-affirm that, it falls apart. And so instead of saying to kids, hey, center your entire identity on this one thing, man, there's a lot of other good things I see about you every day in class. You know, you're so good at this and you're good at that. And I, I see you in this relationship and trying to help them realize that there's a lot more to base their identity off of. That makes so much sense. Do you think, do you think there's any help in kind of ever explaining to students almost like I never even thought realized like there's a different modern like this is yes. you know we are that society now is so focused on you and kind right. of helping them realize that some of those pressures are coming from outside of them right. and being put right. on them in that way you know I think that you know an exercise you might do is you know you could just take some uh just cut out some some marketing ads or run some different commercials for you know the advertising of different things um you know, I have four girls, and so we get the American Girl Dog Catalog pretty consistently. And the American Girl Dog Catalog is a fascinating, I would say, <laughs> pro-modern identity because it basically is saying, you make a doll that is in your image that can be, look like, do whatever it is that you want to be, which is very much the message that gets communicated to students. So I would just, you know, maybe you can, again, do some of this teaching, but contextualize it for your environment and say, hey, what are some of the drawbacks of this, you know? What do you think would be some of the hard parts about this? And what you're trying to do is slowly poke some holes at some of the fallacies there, right? So if modern identity is all based on your feelings, like today I feel like this, what happens if tomorrow you don't feel like that? And what happens if two weeks from now you don't feel like that? Do you want an identity that is so shifting and fluid that you never can have a stable sense of who you are, right? And just kind of throwing out some of those questions. What are some of the strengths of that? What are some of the weaknesses of that? Um, and, you know, in some ways, maybe helping them kind of come to their own sense of like, this isn't a stable way to build out a sense of who I am. Right. So even if we can't come in with the clear yeah, right, answer, with the Bible, that's what we right. can get students to think and right. open up opportunities right. for God to bring in, like exactly. trust that God can bring in right. other things to bring right. the answers, even if we right. can't. I went speaking yes. when we can, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I read a recent article um, about um, the current generation and just talking about that there's now a, a new movement towards abstinence and not having sex at all. Mm. Because culturally over the past, you know, 5, 10, 15 years in the sexual revolution, there's been such an emphasis on sex. You see the pendulum coming back because we've invested so much in it. And we've said, this is ultimately who you are. And people are buying that and realizing it's not. I'm actually more unhappy, more anxious, more depressed than ever. And you see the pendulum coming all the way back to where, okay, I'm not going to have sex ever again. I'm just going to be completely abstinent, asexual. And you realize, I mean, culture then is constantly chasing after itself. And that's, again, where that gospel identity, which is saying it's not this and it's not that, but it's this, is such an important skill that we all have to really sharpen as believers. Well, thank you so much. This has been really, really helpful. I hope it's been helpful for you guys. Do any final words of encouragement or anything else you think would be helpful for teachers to consider? Yeah, you know, my encouragement to, to teachers, especially in the environment that so many of your listeners find themselves in, would be to, to remain faithful, to just be faithful. Uh, some of these conversations, uh, you don't know if they're going to bear fruit, you know, within the academic calendar year, or if those seeds might be something that bear fruit later on. And I think teachers play such an important role 
in the formation of identity. Uh, it can be either for good or for bad, but hopefully more often than not the good of just helping students realize, hey, you are more than your grades. You are more than your performance. You are more than just what you can do. And, and here's what's most important about you, who God is and who he says you are. That's what's most important. And if we can't say that explicitly, that we then live that um, in a very embodied, in a very uh, practical way through our testimony and our witness. I love that, right? Just what we say and then what they absorb just by right. seeing yeah, just how by we seeing interact us. and love yeah. them and care for right. them day by day. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Would you mind actually closing us up in no, prayer, I would prayer love for to. the teachers? I would love listening. to. I'd love to. Uh, Father, we come to you uh, this afternoon or whenever uh, this might be viewed or be heard. Oh, Lord, we realize that you're a God who inclines his ear to listen and to hear us. And so I'm sure many teachers just find themselves at impossible, seemingly impossible crossroads in conversations with their students about these issues. A lot of teachers, I'm sure, finding themselves uh, just bound by certain ethical and, and other legal standards that uh, maybe prevent them from being able to be as open and honest with their convictions. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help them all in the midst of just really challenging circumstances to remain faithful, a Father, to remember that um, there is a bigger storyline happening, a Father, that you are sovereign and good and wise and that you are directing all things uh, ultimately for your glory and that you call us to participate through obedience and through faithfulness. And so, Lord, uh, would you help us towards that end? And uh, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again. Oh, thanks, Linda. I hope that you guys enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan Holmes and found it really helpful. Once again, that chart that we mentioned and any other resources, you can find all of that at teachfortheheart.com slash identity. And if you did find this conversation helpful, I hope you'll take that URL, teachfortheheart.com slash identity, and share it with a friend or colleague. Or honestly, it doesn't even have to be a teaching colleague. I think these things are really valuable for any believer in any context. So we hope that you'll share uh, this episode with your friends and colleagues. And then remember, uh, I hope you You'll also join us next year at the Rise Up Summit. Uh, RiseUpChristianEducators.com is where you can find out more about what we have planned for next year. And then finally, remember our planner, Pray and Plan, is now available for pre-order. So if you go to TeachForTheHeart.com slash planner, that's where you can find out all the details and pre-order your copy. Guys, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to speak with you again soon. In the meantime, remember, God is at work in you and through you. Keep your eyes on him and teach for the heart.